I'm Rachel Brown, and I'm delighted to be reading for Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my book, Trace, Who Killed Maria James? When I was based in London for work, I used to go to his salons in Shoreditch and sit in delight in front of new authors. It's such a beautiful thing to be read to, so I'm pinching myself that I'm about to do that for you. This book is the backstory of my two-year review of the 1980 cold case of Maria James, who was stabbed in the back of her Melbourne bookshop. I reported my discoveries through the serialised podcast Trace on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and it has led to a police admission of a DNA bungle and prompted the coroner to consider holding a fresh inquest. This book leapfrogs between my investigation in 2016 and that of homicide detective Ron Idles in 1980. April 2016, 1pm, coroner's court with Ron. Diary note from the 21st of April 2016. I wince at Maria's bruised face in the autopsy photos. Her left eye is slightly opened, the right swollen and closed. Her skin looks puffy and translucent. Her scalp is missing some clumps of her dark hair. I wonder whether this was the killer's doing or the pathologist's. I've seen post-mortem photos before during my days as a court reporter. Some days, during those grim prosecution sessions aimed at swaying a jury, I'd look. Other days, I'd drift. Common journo distractions were newspapers, Sudoku, doodling, or scratching one's initials into the Supreme Court media desks. I have no doubt this would have looked disrespectful to those crammed into the rigid wooden pews of the public gallery. But once you see, you can't unsee. And these pictures can creep into your dreams, so sometimes it's best not to look. Today I have to, because a seeming contradiction in this cold case has inspired my promise to Maria's sons that I'll look into it. A promise for two boys, now middle-aged men, who've lived in a holding pattern for as long as I've been alive. It's promises that can be our undoing, I'll later learn from Ron Eadles. From now, as I look at all the white crumbs on Maria's black jumper, which turn out to be her white shirt peeking through the slashes in the wool, I make her a silent pledge that I'll do my best. When Ron arrives to walk through this final photo album of Maria's life, he says he can't look at these photos through the same sentimental prism I'm using. My sad crumbs are his priceless clues. I see that as part of a jigsaw puzzle, he tells me. If I looked at that in some other way, I don't think I would have lasted 25 years. He's been a constant figure at police doorstops throughout my career as a journalist with the ABC, but I've never worked with him personally. He's 61, burly, and he wears that appraising stare, synonymous with any cop. But there's a gruff warmth about him, a reassuring presence. He's known for his no-bullshit approach and his compassion towards victims, families and even crooks. Most aren't bad people, he tells me. They just make bad choices in life. He has a certain knack. I've watched a killer go to water in an interview room when Ron put a hand on his shoulder and said, it's a big burden to carry, don't let it eat you up. The killer dragged his chair forward, put his hands around Ron's and confessed. I remember a fellow journalist commenting, if I had anything to confess, I'd confess to Ron. 
The lines on Ron's forehead and around his piercing blue eyes read like a diary of those 60-hour shifts he'd spent at horror scenes. And there's something of myself I recognise in him. Sheer stubbornness. But this has made him a divisive figure within the Victorian police force. Ron is part of the old guard, a copper who'll buck the system by releasing information if he feels it'll help a case. Some of the new guard, however, would prefer that the force's information and secrets remain internal. Many of my colleagues lament that over the past decade, the force's media liaison unit has morphed into more of a shield than a channel, which is why I need Ron. He's approaching retirement from his position as the secretary of the police association, the police union. It'll mean handing in his badge, number 18150, for good. He should be daydreaming about fishing trips with his son off the coast of Cairns, or bike rides, or finally getting some decent sleep. Instead, he's graciously fielding questions from me about his very first case, which still grates like hell. June 1980. Ronnie crew moves into the ill-fated bookshop on High Street, hoping the walls might talk, or that the locals will. The thinking is that the detective's presence might encourage people to drop in with information about the stabbing. 68 wounds. Christ. This tells Ron that the killer's emotions have outrun their intelligence. It was unplanned, he suspects, but furious all the same. He's seen death before, but this is something else. And the force doesn't employ cleaners, so each time he walks past the bedroom, he sees the victim's blood soaked into the carpet. For this homicide rookie, it feels very strange for his crew to be treating this house like their own. A woman has been viciously killed in here, and they're going about their lives as if it's all normal. They're using her cutlery, crockery, kettle, even the outside barbecue for dinners, as they usually don't knock off until 10 or 11 most nights. Then they go home, shower, maybe chat to their wives, pass out, and return by 7am to do it all again. His crew has turned the dining table, a billiard table with a board perched on top, into their communal desk, It's now a nest of paperwork being peered over by detectives sporting brown suits and moustaches. Ron spots Mark James, the victim's 13-year-old son. Mark and his little brother Adam have been shipped off to live with their dad. But Mark's occasionally allowed back in for clothes. Ron quietly wonders about Mark, what he's making of all this, of his house being commandeered, his home forever lost. March 2016. It was Father Anthony Bongiorno who presided over Maria's funeral at her parish St Mary's Thornbury, but that's all a blur for Mark James. He tells me all he remembers is white noise. The church was crawling with cops, and it made him anxious. That day I was really uncomfortable to be out in public. It was a big funeral and police were there filming. Rather than it being a private, quiet family event, it was an exposed thing. My dad had brought me a brand new computer game back then called an Atari. And I actually had the box for this. I didn't really want to be involved with other people or interacting in that funeral, so I carried that Atari box around to kind of shield me from other people. Totally inappropriate, but I just didn't want to be around anyone. The local church had loomed large in the family's life. Mark was an altar boy. Maria James would regularly make the short trip three doors down for masses, and sometimes she'd leave Adam with Father Bongiorno. 
The 11-year-old demanded a lot of attention, with his cerebral palsy and Tourette's. So his time with the priest also allowed Maria to run errands and have some quiet time. It was actually Father Bongiorno who broke the tragic news to Mark, with the delicacy of a sledgehammer. We were heading towards the school office and he broke the news to me and I could barely stand up. I was in shock. I kind of collapsed and had difficulty walking. I would have expected Father Bongiorno to pick me up and help carry me, but he wasn't really doing much. He was having to half drag me into the principal's office. I've reflected on the way he said it. It didn't appear to come out in a compassionate or sympathetic way. It was more like something he just wanted to get over with, you know, finish off and get it over with. I think Father Bongiorno and I drove back, either in a police car or in a taxi to the bookshop. Police were everywhere. Then the two bereft sons were shipped off to their dads, with nothing more than the school uniforms on their backs. 2013. A decade sails by, frosting over the trail of Maria's killer. Then in 2013, Adam James drops a bombshell that Ron Idles never saw coming. Adam's revelation alerts Ron to the possibility that at Maria's funeral, when detectives were scrutinising the congregation for her killer, maybe they were all looking in the wrong direction. Maybe they should have been looking up at the altar. That ends some early excerpts from my book, Trace, Who Killed Maria James? If you'd like to listen to the podcast, Trace, you can find it on iTunes or online at abc.net.au forward slash trace.